I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Sadie McKinley is head of development for the Edinburgh International Festival, where she raises funds to enable this annual celebration of the performing arts, working with sponsors, donors, and trust and foundation supporters to create meaningful and valuable partnerships that support the presentation of music, drama, and dance in theatres and concert halls, and learning and engagement and community programmes throughout Edinburgh. Sadie previously worked for the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh and the Southbank Centre in London, where she cut her teeth in donor cultivation. Hello and welcome, Sadie. So what inspired and attracted you to the performing arts in the first place? I grew up in the, in the middle of the countryside with no access really to arts and culture. I think the only thing we ever did was go to the pantomime once a year or maybe a play with the school. Um, and then when I was um, just left school after I was 17, 18, I moved to London and my eyes just opened, you know, there was so much going on in the city, so much happening. I mean, not just theatres and um, concerts, but galleries, museums. And, you know, I, I suppose I probably didn't study hard enough, but what I did do was experience a lot of things that were going on in London. Um, but my first job was in... Uh, the private sector and I was doing things like organizing hospitality events for sponsorships I was doing communications for the team but one of the things they did was sponsor a lot of events so I had sort of experience on the other side of fundraising Um, I went away for a year that was in the 80s a lot of these companies went bust there was a sort of you know economic crisis then went away to France for a year to learn French and came back to London and it was my experience of organizing events I got a job at the South Bank Centre and so, as you know, there's a big complex on the Thames and it has concert halls, it has the Haywood Gallery. And all of a sudden I was working behind the scenes in this environment. And that was my first introduction to, to fundraising for the performing arts. And I, it, was, it, was a, it was a great introduction. It was a big, well-established fundraising team. They fundraise all different kinds of areas. And I just learned all these other skills when I was there. Um, but by this time, I'd been in London for about 10 years and wanted to move out of London and ended up in Scotland. And we had a bizarre way of choosing where to go. It was like, well, a list of cities, and then who between uh, my partner and I would get a job first, and that's where we would go. So um, we moved, we ended up in Edinburgh, and I applied for lots of jobs and got a job based on my one year's experience, I have to say, um, at the Lyceum Theatre here in in Edinburgh and as, as a sponsorship manager. And I was the only person doing fundraising. It was my first job in a theatre, and just loved it absolutely loved it (laughs) um and i think i was lucky because in those days you only ever had one member of your fundraising team and you had to do every kind of fundraising so i really learned on the ground um and i just learned to love the theater and performing arts that way i think just seeing it happen seeing it happening in rehearsals i mean the workshops the, the work that goes into building the sets you know the scenic artists the costume department you, you just you can't you know unless you've actually experienced that I think it's kind of sometimes quite hard to convey 
how it is to be, I suppose I would call myself a non-creative person, how you are being a non-creative person in a creative environment and what it can do for the role that you do. The first point that I'd like to make is that Edinburgh is one of the most distinct and beautiful cities in the world and an epicentre of arts and culture which rises from the Firth of Forth where the Cantilever Trust architectural staple Forth Bridge stands strong as a colossus that crosses Scotland's Firth of Forth estuary. It even has a castle that is over 900 years old, slam dunk right in the centre of the city. Yes, you've sensed, I'm describing the centre of the universe, and of course I have no unfair bias towards. The point being, Sadie, you have impeccable taste in the choices you have on where you have decided to live. And the Edinburgh Festival is one of the most influential celebrations of arts and culture worldwide, encompassing music, theatre, opera and dance, which has further helped position Edinburgh on the global stage as a creative city and enabler of bringing creative talent to the world. Sadie, it must be an elating experience being part of that community and being able to influence and bring to life its creative output. I think I'm very lucky, Roy, that I have worked for three different festivals in Edinburgh. Um, so actually, there's, there's, there's no such thing as the Edinburgh Festival. There's, there's, a, there's lots of different festivals that make yeah. that up. So where I am at the moment, that's the Edinburgh International Festival, as you rightly said, you know, leading performing arts, opera, theatre, drama, dance from around the world. Yeah. But my first festival job was the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Um, and then I moved to the Edinburgh Book Festival. So I worked in these different arts and cultural environments. And you can see through these different lenses the impacts they have in, in, on different parts of the city with different yeah. people, different age groups. And, you know, this festival, well, the International Festival was founded in 1947. We're going to be 75 years old next year. It's our 75th edition next year. Oh, congratulations in advance. Well, it's, it's <laughs> the last few years, sometimes you wondered if we'd get there. Yes, but, of course. <laughs> um, you know, the, it, the festival was founded to sort of bring people back together again after the Second World War. Yeah. And to have this sense of cultural understanding and how we can do that through the arts. And I think it's just done an enormous thing for bringing people together. But as you say, as well, for Edinburgh, it wasn't necessarily guaranteed that's where the festival was going to be. Um, and it was the foresight of some of the city leaders at that time. And Rudolf Bing, who established the first festival, he was a, a Jewish refugee. Uh, and, you know, without people who've got that kind of vision, this would never have happened. Yeah. And since then, lots of festivals have sprung up all around the world in the mould of Edinburgh. Um, but the thing is, you can come here and you can just, it's a melting pot. You can see all these different pieces of work from different countries in one place. Um, and I think that's the beauty of it in a way. Yes. I've spent many a day in Edinburgh. And the first time I experienced the festival was as a teenager, which was one of my earliest experiences of being truly exposed to a global diversity of people, foods, smells, noises, fashions, music, art, etc, etc, which was the perfect storm for a curious and adventurous teenager and expanding the, the mind and imagination. The city completely takes an international look and feel throughout the duration of the festival. 
then when it's over, there is always an aftermath of pilgrims and the likes who have made that journey from all over the globe who end up falling in love with the city and end up not wanting to leave the city and, and ending up residing there, which continually and annually infuses its cultural richness and beauty in a sustainable way. You're right, the city does change. I mean, the population almost doubles during August. And, and this is August we're talking about. There are festivals year-round, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it has this amazing backdrop, you know, a castle. You've got an extinct volcano. You have the old town. You have the new town, you know. And what we're trying to do is, is move our, our sort of um, events out of the city centre to engage more with people who live and work in Edinburgh year-round. Yes. There's lots of many communities that are all around the city centre. We mustn't forget that, and it's really important to have programmes that are year-round, like our learning engagement programme, as well as bringing these sort of amazing international artists here in August. We can, we can sort of engage with audiences, and that doesn't necessarily mean they have to become a ticket buyer in the future, but they should be able to feel the benefit of yeah. what we do and take pop-out performances into these venues. Or, as we did... Two years ago, take the LA Philharmonic, put them in a football stadium, do a big free concert for 15,000 people, half of whom had never been to classical music before. Wow. And so that's when fundraising, and, you know, in some ways, that's the beauty of my job. Because if I can go to someone and go, this is what we want to do. This is our vision. Can you help support us? Can you help us do this? You know, when you've got amazing, <laughs> fantastic events like that, that you can approach people with. Yeah. That makes fundraising a joy. You know? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue into your creative process, what you do in terms of how do you make it happen. So on that, how do you make the, the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas, developing them into concepts, and then bringing them to actualization from a fundraising perspective? In some ways, you're a bit like a producer, I think. You know, there's some same sort of skills that apply. There's actually a process to it. So underneath a creative layer on the top, you, there's, there's steps you have to follow in fundraising. And really that applies whether you're raising money from individual donors or from corporate partnerships or from trusts and foundations. And I quite like that because it means there's different parts to the job you can do. There's a really early stage of identifying who might support you and doing some research around research around them and I really like that you know I think in another life I'd like to have been a detective or something because it really is exploring who those supporters are and then in a way you have to match them up with what you're doing so do, do their brand values align with ours you know we're really yeah. focused on discovery and on generosity and sharing what we do and we want to work with brands in particular that would share that ethos. Um, and then it's about getting to know people. And, and, and people ask me, what's the definition of development, which is what we call fundraising? Here. And I say, well, it's about maintaining and building relationships with people. You know, raising funds is the byproduct of that. At the end of the day, whether the money is coming from an organization or an individual, it, it's about people and talking to people about what we do. And I suppose bringing to life, you need some element of storytelling. And I learn from all my colleagues around me. So the people who do work in programming, I listen to what they're saying. How are they describing the work that's going to come here? And then how can I either describe it on the same way or describe it in terms that relate directly to the people I'm talking to? And that's when the creative part comes in. That's when you start to talk in, in the terms of our audience, you know, the supporters, and creating proposals 
and coming up with ideas of how you could pitch proposals to people and fundraising opportunities. And so that's another stage in it, you know, and so we have to follow steps along the way and then we embellish it around the top. Um, but you've got to have credibility as well, you know. You can't go out and promise all of these things that you know you can't deliver at the end of the day. So we can't think up too many wild ideas because yeah. we might not be able to do that. What are the key skills needed to survive and thrive in fundraising for the performing arts? You know, I was doing um, some work with one of our local high schools. Our, our learning and engagement program has had a residency in the high school and we're doing a fundraising project with them. You and I talked earlier about these podcasts are very much about giving back. And here was an opportunity, you know, I think for my team to go and talk to them. And I had to say, you know, if you want a career in fundraising, you, you can't really train for that. In some ways, there are some courses now, but it's really the soft skills I think are so important. Um, and I couldn't really demonstrate to them because, you know, it's sometimes it's just about shaking hands with people. And of course, we can't <laughs> with COVID, go and do that at the moment. But looking people in the eye when you're talking to them, learning how to write letters, how to answer the phone, how to have a conversation. And I think that's that bit because if you can do that and you can build up a relationship with somebody and you're telling them a lot about what you do, that's a big part of it. The other big part is having a passion for the thing that you're fundraising about because someone would see straight through you if they thought, oh, this person doesn't believe in what they're raising funds for, you know. And it doesn't matter what your passion is. It could be the arts. It could be sport. You know, it could be gardening. If you've got that passion and you can get that across to people, you've got to have a sort of similar interest to start with. I think they're the base of the skills that you need to get into fundraising and the other things you can learn. Very true. Your point about passion is especially resonant. When you are genuinely passionate about what you do, it projects positivity and magnetic energy and a confidence and belief in what you do, as opposed to someone who is just going through the motions and the checkboxing of things, but instead are proactively driven by the purpose of what they do and take a mission-driven approach and driving that with persistence to bring it to life and ultimately resulting in success. And I think one of the other things is you, you have to be able to talk to people in different ways. So obviously we have a lot of um, supporters who are interested in classical music. Now that's not, I, I don't have a, a huge knowledge about that. I rely on the programming team to help me with that. But none of our supporters often know a lot more. But what you do is you, you talk to them about supporting us in a different way that you might talk to a corporate organisation. I think that an individual donor who, has, who, again, has that passion for music or theatre or dance, they want to support us to bring the best that the world has here in Edinburgh. You know what? They want to get that up-close experience in terms of they can see this work in their hometown. You know what I mean? They don't have to travel the world to see it because it's all coming here. Yeah. Whereas if I'm talking to a, a brand partner, they're, they're very much interested in our audience. They want to know who our audience is. They will know less about the art form and they will rely on us to you know, and our reputation to know that the work that's going to be here is going to be excellent work. But they want to know, so who are the audience that's attracted to this? How often do they come? How can I reach them? Those sort of things that, you, you know, most people do in business anyway. It's like, how, how do you target your audience really? Yeah. Yes, communication is such a peculiar thing. 
And what may mean one thing to one person can mean something very different to another. So knowing your audience and the diversity of personas in them is critical in being able to to really land your message that it communicates in the way you intend it to. And being able to communicate effectively by passing information to people and communities from one place to another so that it is clearly understood is probably the most essential human life skill there is but it can often be taken for granted and it's staggering on how poor we as humans can be at communicating. You are active in all aspects of the performing arts. How do you keep adrift with trends and the themes and be able to have informed and credible conversations that connect the hearts and minds of your community? Do you do that through immersing yourself in the community and networks and listening systems associated, or do you proactively do research and and analysis, or all of those? I'm really fortunate that I work in an organisation where learning and being able to experience what we're fundraising for is deemed an important part of your job. And I have colleagues who obviously know an enormous amount of work, and so I ask them questions, and we talk about the programme. You know, people say, well, what do you do year-round? Well, as soon as one festival finishes, we're working on the next one. So our programming team, I can talk to them about, you know, what what are their plans for the festival the next year? You know, we have videos we watch. We can go and see work. Um, And it's just learning. Obviously, I'm I'm never going to have the knowledge or depth of knowledge that they have. But it's really important here that there's a learning environment across everything we do. You have a well-established, globally recognised brand, which will be highly attractive and a no-brainer to compel like-minded donors wanting to be associated and support your purpose and mission. Though what are some of the obstacles you have to combat with the less inclined donors, but the the ones that you'd like to get involved. How do you go about doing that? I think of it as an 18-month process sometimes. So we only happen once a year. We're on for three weeks in August. Yeah. So if I was to take a kind of diary look at it, um, I might go, well, in November, what I'll do is start to make contact with people that might be interested in supporting us, especially if they're unknown partners. Yeah. Um, and then, as I say, we're going through that process. We've done some research, we've identified them. And part of it is for them to experience what the festival is. So if they've never been before, that means that's eight months until they can come and really experience what we do. So they might come and see the festival next August. And like you say, when people come here and they see what Edinburgh is like and see the work on stage, they're blown away by it. So then you've got another year before that partnership might realise itself. So it's taken all of this length of time to go through this process of getting people on board. Um, sometimes it's a lot quicker, obviously, it's a lot easier. If it's, a, if it's an organisation that's based in Edinburgh and they know what you can do, they might not have been, but they understand it, yes, they might, they might agree to come on board as a, a corporate member sooner than that. Um, and sometimes it'll take a lot longer but that's a rule of thumb for me, just based on our schedule and, and our diary throughout the year. Got it. In terms of how hard it is, you know, fun, I think that's where people don't go into fundraising until they sort of fall into fundraising because everyone looks at it and goes, oh, my goodness, I've got to ask somebody for money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and it's OK, because what you have to realise is that's what these people you're meeting are expecting you to do. So 
sometimes it's hard to get that conversation going. Um, other times, you know, people know exactly why you're there. And, and you know, and I love it when people are really clear as well and they go, this isn't for us. That's, you know, that's fine. It's, it's when you don't get an answer or decisions aren't made that you go, are they really interested? Is this going anywhere? You know, yeah. I'm sure if you're pitching for business as well, you get that same thing. And I just love the honesty that people give. Um, but there's a great feeling when you marry these two things together and you've suddenly got this, this festival that you're putting on and you've got a new supporter. And, you know, we call them our festival family. We're engaging people into this. And, you know, and they get hooked on it and it gets under your skin, your festival. You know, I think that's why I've been working in festivals for kind of 15 years probably it must be more than that actually can't add up um <laughs> but it does and you get you get a buzz out of it and the way of working it, it i think it's different to if you might be working for an organization and i have that a theater produces work year round you know we have these amazing highs and lows yeah um and and you can't beat that as a feeling as you reflect back upon your career to date what are your lessons learned in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success that you can share with aspiring um, fundraisers in the performing arts? I think in terms of a, a pitfall, um, I did I stepped out of the arts for, for a year or so, just still in fundraising. And I realized, oh, I was in the wrong environment. I realized I missed being around all these creative people. And so that's when I came back to work in festivals. And I look back on that and I go, okay, it didn't work out for me, but that doesn't mean it was a disaster. And I and I've treated it as almost as a training year because yeah. I learned an awful lot in that time. And I think that's the thing people should remember that, you know, you might you might take a wrong decision on something like that. You might make a mistake, but it's okay and just learn from it. That's the thing um, to keep to keep doing. And I think I think lifelong learning is really good as well. Um, one of the things that I really like is you know, just the people that are around me, um, working, choosing your right team, getting people that all work together so you've got that support around you, you can encourage people and you can take them on this journey with you. That's that's something that's really good because, you, you know, you, I don't do this on my own, you know. Yeah. Nobody does this on, our, on their own. Um, and you have to work together and there are times when you're picking people up or they're picking you up. Um, and share as much knowledge as you have, you know doing things like this, working with the school. I do some mentoring for um, sort of artists who aren't doing fundraising as in their role, but everybody, if, you, if you're running a very small company on your own, as you know, a theatre company, dance company, you have to do all of these different things. And so I do work with them as well. And, and I get a lot out of it, being on a board of a company as well. And I think just meeting people and getting out there, you know, it's that's one of the things in the last two years that's been really difficult not being able to get out and meet people face to face. So as you tilt forward, what's your vision for the future of performing arts and the role of creativity? In a, an environment where, you know, we have to fundraise because we, we obviously make a lot of um, our income through ticket sales and there's some in public subsidy. And public subsidy has been declining over years and that's why we have fundraising really. And I suppose the vision would be you didn't have to do fundraising in a way. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of an odd thing. I'd be doing myself out of a job. You know, the idea, and we've seen how important arts and culture and performing arts have been over the past two years. People watching online, you know, just using this to sort of help with their mental health and well-being. And that vision would be that it wouldn't be a struggle to have to fundraise for it. You know, I love my job and I like what I'm doing and I like that bit of bringing people together and I wouldn't want to not do it, but... 
to find that position where you're going, you have to fundraise to survive. I think it's a shame. But I think the nature of it is changing as well. You know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time and I've seen when I first started out, you know, an artistic director would go, well, here's my program for the year, go and fundraise for it. And you go, um, <laughs> not sure <laughs> any of that is fundraisable, but never mind. And then, you know, times have moved on and fundraising and what we can do is seem to be a very important part and has to be in, in discussion early on as well. But, you know, brands used to sponsor because they wanted their logo everywhere. Uh, they want to do corporate hospitality and that's changing and it's all become about you know, sponsorship with a purpose. And I think that's really important that there's a very philanthropic aspect even to corporate partnerships now. And we can see how their support of us as performing arts companies means we can have an impact in the community and the wider community we work. So with artists, with community groups, with people who may be more marginalised in society. And that's that's how it's changing. And that's quite exciting because I think that's something that can be explored a lot more. You also mentioned that you did mentor in and work with schools and obviously you're heavily involved with the, the young generation, the, the next generation of creatives coming through. How optimistic are you from your engagement within that community about the future of creativity, the future creatives that's coming through? Oh, these are bright, sparky, intelligent young people, Roy. You know, if, if from the school age group that I'm working with to the younger artists that I've been telling about fundraising, you can see this keenness to learn. And I think it's, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck in a strange time at the moment, but it will pass. And let's just get so infused by, you know, these people are, are far more ambitious and they have, you know, ideas and, and they're activists in their own way. And I think it's just brilliant to see this. And I wish I would have been like them when I was that age. So I think that generation coming through, they're just going to be amazing. I think if we can get beyond these next few years and where we are, you know, with COVID at the moment, there's, there's real hope there. Things are really changing. The children of this revolution are the canvas onto which our values will be imprinted and shaped. It starts with youth to build the society of the future by taking a long-term approach. And it is our duty to pass the baton in a way that leaves the world better than when we entered because our outputs are the next generation's inputs. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com Thank you for listening.